You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. It's good to be with you. Uh, It's good to be here in this text. It's one of my favorite parts of Colossians, and being given the chance to preach from Colossians is one of my favorite of Paul's letters. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, then we'll dive right into this text. God, we give you thanks for this time that we have to be together, and we pray that you would, through your Spirit, be at work in us, inviting us each individually and all of us collectively into a deeper faithfulness. Um, a deeper fidelity to the way of life that you've called us to. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated uh, baptisms here. We had two folks get baptized right here in this space, Emma and William. And as Andrew was leading us through that, um, he used two words to describe the practice of baptism. Does anybody remember what those two words were? It's fine if you don't. I had to ask him just to refresh my own memory this week. He said that baptism is a participation and an initiation. A participation and an initiation into the body of Christ. And our text this morning, this mic's a little hot. Can we turn it down just a stitch? Thanks. Uh, Our text this morning begins with a section that sort of outlines that very notion. So I want to read verses 1 through 4 again, and then we'll, uh, we'll take a look at it. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So hopefully you can catch the imagery of baptism there. What do we say when people go into the water? That it symbolizes that we're dying to our old way of life. And as we come up out of the water, it's symbolizing that we have been raised with Christ. This is the idea that Paul is trying to get across in this uh, passage for us. The reality of the Christian life is that, as N.T. Wright says, what is true of Jesus is also true of us. That Christ died and was raised. And so to be in Christ means that we participate in that dying and rising ourselves. And that's sometimes hard to understand because Jesus physically died and tangibly rose. And our participation is more of a spiritual reality, but that doesn't make it any less true. What Paul's saying is that to walk in the world as a Christian is to every day be a participant in the risen life of Christ. But the important question is, what difference does that make for us practically day to day? That's what I hope to unpack this morning. I actually want to kind of walk it backwards, beginning here in verse 4. It should still be up on the screen. Paul says in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, to be a participant in the risen life of Christ, means that you will always be a participant in that life. There will never be a time where you won't be participating in life with Jesus. There is no end to it. That's what maybe many of us, if we grew up in the church, grew up being told. That one day Jesus will return and those who are in Christ, who are Christians, will be with Him for eternity. 
in glory or in heaven. And that is also something that you don't have to worry about. That's what it says in verse 3. Paul says that because we died, our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, not hidden in like the, I'm going to go around behind this curtain and you can't see me. Hidden in Christ has much more of a sense of safety or security to it. So to be hidden with Christ in God is meant to give us a sense of being kept safe with Jesus. To be a participant in the risen life of Christ means that we have a sense of security that our life with Him is safe. There's nothing that can end it. We will always be in life with Christ. That's a good promise, yeah? Now, rarely in Scripture do we encounter promises like that. The future promises of God, where God is promising safety or security, or saying something like, one day I will take care of it so you don't have to worry, you don't have to be afraid. Almost every time God gives a promise like that for the people of God, it's not done just because or in isolation. It's almost always done in order to animate or sustain a particular way of life in the world now. In other words, God's future promises are always given to help us live a particular way today. That future hope motivates us and sustains us as we live the way of God in the world. Some theologians would say that that's like God's tomorrow informing our today. So in our text, Paul is saying, listen, you've died and been raised with Christ. You participate in that life. And one day, there will be this eternal glory that you share with Jesus in a way that's different than now. And you don't have to worry about that because that is kept safe in Jesus. But since that is true, there are implications for today. Since that's true, that should impact the way we live now. And Paul says it twice in these first four verses. He says, set your hearts on things above. And then he says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So what does that mean? To set our hearts and minds on things above. Does it mean we should cloister ourselves off and only read the Bible and pray? Some people do that. Does it mean that uh, if it doesn't have the label Christian, that it's bad and that we need to not participate in it or enjoy it? Some folks would say yes. Does it mean that we can only enjoy things if we're able to find some sort of secret spiritual meaning to them? So you're not going to hear me say that we shouldn't give more time to meditation on Scripture and prayer. You're not going to hear me say that because we probably should. But I don't think that Paul is saying that things have to be Christian, with quotes, in order to have value. I don't think he's drawing a line between things Christian here and things earthly over here. That can get us into a, a lot of trouble in a hurry. For instance, that way of thinking is what produced the entire industry of Christian pop culture fads. When I was in high school, that meant taking popular clothing brands and renaming them, so Abercrombie and Fitch became a breadcrumb and fish. That really is a real shirt. Or slapping some devotional idea onto normal hobbies. So I'm a golf addict and I can enjoy playing golf because I've got a golf devotional 
It's like 18 holes to birdies with Jesus or something like that. We laugh, but we probably own those. Some of us. I know I do. Did. Did. Don't. That's an artificial way of drawing lines between the Christian and the earthly. I don't think that's the response God is after when he offers us that incredible future promise. He's not doing that so that we will slap Yahweh on a t-shirt instead of Yahoo. That one also existed. That artificial line drawing is another expression of the dynamic that Andrew was talking about last week. We're going to come back to that idea in a minute. But I think Paul is actually after something much more radical here. He says, listen, you died in your life, now raised with Jesus. That life is hidden with Christ in God. And that reality, the idea that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, our lives are where Christ is, means that we live somewhere else now. We live somewhere else. Before Jesus, living in the world as the world does was our only option. But now we've become a participant in the life of Christ, which means that we have been initiated into a new way of life. Participation and initiation. We've been initiated into a new way. The way of Jesus. What the Bible calls the kingdom of God. In other places, the scriptures would contrast things above and earthly things. The contrast is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. That's the same contrast. Now there's a lot of things going on, but we could say, to try and sum it up, that when we participate in the risen life of Christ, we are initiated into a new group of people. That our baptism is an initiation right. We now belong to the kingdom of God. We live there now. We're part of the people. We are citizens of a new place. And I think about that idea a lot because um, as a family, the Gustine family has moved quite a few times over the last 20 years. And every time anybody moves, this is true even if you just move across town, moves are full of all kinds of transitions and changes. But for me, uh, the biggest change was when we moved from Illinois to New York City in 2008. Um, that move was the biggest challenge for me because nearly every single thing about the way you live life in Illinois is different than the way you live life in New York City. There were so many new things to learn. For instance, coffee in New York comes with cream and sugar standard. I found that out the hard way. And if you order coffee black in New York, they will look at you like you are a moron. And I learned that the hard way. Uh, it, it, when it snows in New York, you have 48 hours to get the snow off your sidewalk. Because so many people walk, it turns it into a sheet of ice. If you don't get it cleared off in 48 hours, you can get fined. Otherwise, people will break their backs on your sidewalks. I thought at first that New Yorkers were rude all the time because they were so blunt. But it took me a really long time to learn that New Yorkers just don't have time to like put the Midwest nice on it. Uh, maybe the biggest change for me was learning how to drive. I was a good Midwestern boy. I learned how to be a defensive driver. And defensive drivers offend all New Yorkers. They offend all New Yorkers. If you drive defensively in New York City, they're going to put you in the sidewall. So I learned that very quickly, I was going to either have to let it rip or perish. Those are the only two choices. And I chose to let it rip. And to this day, my dad still grabs the car door when he gets in the car with me. 
So those are silly examples, but the point was that this new place had a way of life to it. And when I became a citizen of that place, I had a choice. That I could either keep doing things the way that I'd always done them, and I'd stick out like a sore thumb, or I could adopt a way of life as a matter of my own identity. Right? I could become a New Yorker. And that's how you make a new place your home, right? You make a new place your home by embracing the culture and the values and the practices of that new place. At some level, leaving behind the person you were before in Illinois for the person that you had to become in New York. And this is what Paul is getting at. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. You participate in the risen life of Christ. That is home. That's not just a future reality. Your home is the kingdom of God right now. So give yourselves to that reality. Set your mind like you set your watch to beat in time to the rhythms and the values of this new place. Instead of living your old ways in a new place, live a new way right now, even though you're living out the rest of your life in the same old place. This is where I think it connects to what Andrew was talking about last week. You notice at the beginning of our text it says, since then, which is Bible study clue that there's, even though a chapter change, it's still the continuation of the same idea. Paul's continuing his thinking from the passage that we looked at last week, which was focused on the ways that people were trying to be faithful to Jesus by implementing these rules and extra practices as a way of demonstrating real Christianity. And Paul was trying to get the point across, listen, those things look wise, but they don't actually produce anything of substantive value. They don't actually restrain any of the sensual indulgence that's getting you into trouble. It doesn't actually produce a full transformation, and that's what you need. It can't be a superficial thing. It has to be a full transformation. The superficial practices aren't going to cut it. Eventually, you'll be exposed as fraudulent. And when I think about my life in New York, I think similarly. There was so much I loved about life in the city, but it was all the superficial stuff, like the bagels. Has anybody ever had a New York City bagel? Like two people? Oh my goodness. Okay, three. That will be on the spread in the heavenly banquet. I'm convinced of it. I love the bagels. I actually really loved the subway. I love the skyline over the water. I love the bagels. I love the mix of culture and the bagels. But as I look back at it now, we lived there four years. I don't think there was any point in that four years where I wasn't obviously a Midwestern kid trying to play act metropolitan. I remember one time I got invited to go to a Mets game. It was Mets versus Cardinals. And you might know that I'm a, I'm a diehard Cardinals fan, actually. So I was naturally very excited. And I had spent the previous almost decade in the Chicago suburbs as a Cardinal fan. So I know what it's like to be a fan of a team that everyone hates. Uh, I'd sat in the bleachers at Wrigley in a Cardinals gear for a Cardinals Cub game. So I know the abuse you can take over a three-hour period of time uh, if you're wearing the enemy jersey. And so I thought, I'm a little nervous about this experience, actually, going to a Mets game. Hopefully they're a little bit nicer, but I was invited by somebody who's actually part of the Mets organization. So I had a plan. I would just wear normal clothes. And I wasn't going to cheer for the Mets, but I would also not overtly cheer for the Cardinals. I would just enjoy the game. I'd be polite. I'd be a good guest. And I thought the plan was working perfectly. 
I was lovely. I thought I was polite, uh, enjoying the game. Midway through the game, the, the host looks at me and he goes, you're a Cardinal fan, aren't you? Exposed. Hopefully the point is clear. Unless our participation in the risen life of Christ and initiation into citizenship of the kingdom of God transforms us to our core, there are no external practices that will demonstrate faithfulness to Christ. Those external practices will always be superficial. Unless we give ourselves fully to making our new home our full identity, people will always be able to point out the fact that our Christian practice is just masking the same old way of life as everybody else. Maybe that's the reason why so many Christians get in trouble for acting the fool these days. When we moved back to the Midwest, I realized something that, that like upon reflection, that I'd never actually stopped calling Illinois home. Uh, the entire time we lived in New York, I would tell people, well, we're going home for Christmas, or we're going home for two weeks this summer. But that wasn't true, because Illinois was not my home. New York was. New York was where my family was. New York was where my home was, where my work was, where all my stuff was. It was where my feet were. But I kept calling Illinois home. The reality was that my home was Brooklyn, but I undermined it every time that I referred to my old identity as home. My New Yorkerness was only and always going to be skin deep because I never said this is home. And Paul is trying to help the Colossians see the same. If you insist on practicing Christianity only through these superficial things, your Christianity will only be skin deep. What you need is to give yourself to this new identity. Live in this new home. Live a new way. Yes, in the same old place, but live a new way. It can't be skin deep. It has to transform your very core, which is where we finally get to the rest of this passage where Paul says, so put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So if you are alive in Christ, if you are risen with him, if your life is kept safe in God, if one day you'll be a full citizen of the kingdom for all eternity, then learn the ways of the kingdom. Learn the full way of life, not just superficial practices but embrace the full and thorough transformation that citizens of this new place should expect to have. Paul here is talking about the deeply rooted practices and postures of our old way of life. Immorality, impurity, lust, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filth, dishonesty. Those are all old ways of life. They don't fit in over here in this new place. To try and practice Christianity while holding on to the old ways will eventually leave you exposed as a fraud or a pretender. Mets fans will see right through you. 
So let me encourage us here. This is a, frankly, very strongly worded passage from Paul. Especially because he seems to be saying that there's a lot of superficial Christianity out there. I want to encourage us in this way. So if I'm guessing that if we were honest, uh, if we contemplated this list, we'd see ourselves in this list more than we'd like. If you're like me, and I know that I am, I look at this list of things that should be put to death, and I'm ashamed that I tolerate too much of this list in my own life. And I guess I would want to also emphasize that in my experiences, churches make a really big deal out of like two or three of these and really downplay some of the others. But Paul makes no distinction. So for instance, immorality and speaking badly about someone are the same in that they are both old ways, ways of being, and they all need to be put to death. And anyways, as I was saying, an encouragement. The Christian life, is always about learning to live out what's already true. Paul, I don't think, is under any illusion of perfection for the people of God. He even says in other places that he struggles to live out what he knows is right and good and true. Living life with Christ is a reality. Our life is with Jesus. And it is also something that we are learning how to do every day. It's something that we are becoming. When Paul says put to death, I think it's an active idea, meaning that it isn't a once and for all thing. It requires ongoing action. If we're honest, these old ways are ingrained in us because it is the culture and the values and the practices of the world that we grew up in. And so adopting the culture and the values and practices of a new place will be a lifetime journey. I love the way that I've heard it put that the Christian life is about learning to live now in such a way that we will feel at home when we are with Christ in glory. And when we recognize some of this list in our lives, I think the first thing it should cue us to think is, where is my home? Not, dang it, Adam, get it together. Instead, when we see this list in our lives, I think we can say, hey, where is my home? Where am I living? Because if I live every day in the shadow of Christ, if I live every day as a participant in His life, initiated into His people, then maybe the prayer is something like, God, I want to be at home in this new place. I want to embrace this new reality of life And I want to adopt that way of life so fully that no one will ever know this wasn't my home from the very beginning. The beauty of this way of life is what this way of life produces. It's worth it. Not just because of some future hope, but because the way of Jesus is transforming us. It's transforming us. Is transforming the whole world. Look at the last line from our text for today, verse 11. Paul says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So I want to be brief here because there will be more of this in upcoming weeks, but I want to point out that the transformation from old way to new way, is not just an individual thing. 
the kingdom of God transforms society as well. Transforms the way people live in community together as well. Paul says, here, and what does he mean by here? Where is here? Well, here is the kingdom of God. And this is like Paul putting one of those stickers on his living room wall that says, in this house we live, laugh, love. Paul's saying, here in this place, in the kingdom of God, there is no, you hear it? In this place, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, we don't have time to dive deep into this, but these are groups of people who are historically divided. Not just divided by mutual animosity, but divided by social hierarchy. They're folks who are set apart because their cultural beliefs and practices sets one group as superior to the others. And so these are groups of people who are in charge and those who have to serve. These are people who are privileged and undesirables. And Paul has the audacity to say, in this place, none of those hierarchies hold any water. Because Christ has initiated all of us into a new kind of citizenship that tears down the walls of social division and hierarchy. That's, and it's going to change the way you live in the world. Because this is all about Jesus. Christ is all And because Christ is living out his life through each of us, because Christ is in all, those hierarchical systems can't continue to exist. If you perpetuate the divisions of the world, it's just like perpetuating lust and greed and gossip and slander. Because that's old world stuff. It exposes our lack of transformation. The people of God are meant to be the front runners in tearing down the systems that divide people, of getting rid of systems that the world uses to silence or marginalize. In other words, Paul is saying here in these first 11 verses that Jesus is changing everything. Jesus is transforming everything. He's transforming you and me and us and the world through our new way of life, even if we're living it in the same old place. That reminder, Paul says, we set our minds on things above. We set our hearts on things above. We attune our ways of thinking and the desires of our heart around the things of God is something that requires regular rhythm of reminder. We forget too often, which is why we come to the table each week. Because we were reminded that Jesus died and that Jesus rose and that the body and blood that was broken and spilled was on our behalf such uh, so that we can participate in life with Jesus. That's part of what this practice is as we come to the table. It is a way that we regularly and rhythmically participate in life with Jesus. So the band's going to come and, as always, lead us in a few more songs of reflection and response. We'll come to the table together. There'll be people in the back if you'd like to pray. Let's pray together. God, it is a great comfort and joy to know that what is true of Jesus is also true of us. 
that we are alive in Christ and that there is a great security in knowing that. And we pray, God, that that security would not just lull us to sleep, but that it would wake us up to the incredible reality of being kingdom citizens, called to live a particular way of life in the world. As we come to this table today, we pray that you would remind and refresh our hearts knowing what this table represents. That we are welcome here as a picture of being welcome with you because of what Christ has done. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church. 